Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geek Rant, episode 318, Mesh Networking. Let go and let Google. Recorded March 11, 2018, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. Elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. I am your host, Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson and Miles the Aussie Jenner Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the faithful Opieites. We are glad you could Opie with us today. Hey, is it spring yet? A few more days. Ah, man. By the time this thing goes to air, it might be, huh? Uh, March 21st, I believe. So 10 days from today. Um, I am an American podcaster, and that means that uh, I'm required to do certain things by the FCC. And among those is complain about the fact that we just changed times. So requisite complaining about time change. Grumble, grumble, grumble. The world should really just get over it by now. Yeah, come to Arizona. We don't do that. We don't do that time change. Yeah, but then you have to sync your calendars. All right, today I'm central time. Last week I was I was Pacific time. That that can't be an, uh, uh, anything any less annoying. No, nah, the universe revolves around Arizona. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah, all I know is I think this will be one night I get to sleep at a decent hour. So, because I'm very tired. I think was it on this show I was talking about? I, I don't remember, but a, a friend of mine went on a on a rant uh, a while back on Facebook uh, about uh, time zones. Like, why do we need time zones? Why can't we have just one world time zone that everybody uses? And I say, we do. It's called UTC or Greenwich Mean Time, and nobody uses it because it sucks to to have lunch at noon in one place and 3 a.m. in another place. So, or I guess where noon is dark, it's uh, one place and, and the equivalent of 3 a.m. Because it'd be noon anywhere, right? But we've had that for years. I don't know how long GMT has been a thing or UTC, either of those things. Uh, they're the same thing, but with slight variations. Uh, but we have one world time zone and it doesn't work because people want to eat lunch at noon in the sun. That's that's the way we're wired. We want daytime activities to be in the daytime hours. What do you think? Could could we ever do? I mean, we'd have to leave this planet, right? We'd have to go into space before that actually worked. No, we just need everybody to bow down before Texas because Texas rules all. And just whatever time it is here, that's what time the rest of the world acquiesces to. And then, you know, problem would be solved. Yeah, but this is a non-geek argument because geeks, we live in the dark in rooms on the <laughs> <Right>. internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so spacefarers, submariners and irc geeks done yeah yeah all right so seth uh you uh officially read one of the classics that most of us had to read in high school 1984 yes and it got me thinking that i want to uh like i'm looking for a good list of like the hundred best books of all time kind of thing or you know and obviously that's in the english language uh so i can go through them but i'm kind of bummed because some of the lists i found the majority of them are separate purchases from my $10 a month Amazon uh, Kindle Unlimited. So this one was part of my Kindle Unlimited, so that's so, why I grabbed it. So actually you want the 100 best books in the English language that are offered for free by Amazon. No, no I want Amazon to give me for free the 100 best books of the English language. Got it. Um, are you? Have you read Fahrenheit 451 yet? I've read part of it. Um, but it is, a, it is not, I, I have the paper on that one somewhere, as long as it hasn't gotten up to 452 degrees where my Bitcoin miner is, it should still be safe and I can read it. Well, you know, eBay is always a good place to find books and apparently collectibles, right? Yeah, it is. Especially, I'm going to, going to be a little marketeer here. You have to go to my new eBay store. It's actually not new, but the one I've not mentioned before, Miles Vintage Computers. It's actually called that. If you go to ebay.com slash Miles Vintage Computers, that's Miles with a Y, you'll see my list of resurrected, salvaged, and rescued vintage computer items, um, which I've been doing for a little while now. But I'm just getting back into it right now. So I thought, yeah, I'll just pump, you know, pump that a little bit. Let's see if anybody wants anything cool that's vintage. So you keep all you the best go. stuff for yourself and the rest of it you sell? Yeah. Kind of. So uh, the, what the, what happened was I found this dude on Craigslist about a year ago who had uh, some Atari computer gear that I wanted. And, you know, like I, I just wanted 
an Atari 800, and he had one. But he said, you know, I'll sell it to you. And his price was reasonable. But he said, you have to take everything. And I said, well, what's everything? He says, well, come over and have a look. So I end up going to this warehouse that was in this business that had gone bankrupt or something. And he tells me, come around the back to the shipping receiving dock. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. So I go around the back. And literally this guy on a forklift brings out a pallet load of boxes of Atari vintage stuff. And he said, you got to take all of it. And I had my wife's car, which is kind of like an SUV. And I thought, yeah, I probably can fit it. So I'm, okay, how much, how much is this going to cost me, dude? And he goes, hundred bucks, take it all. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I, I tell you, I felt like I was on an episode of Storage Wars. So I go and get this thing. I have no idea. These boxes of stuff, I have no idea what I got. Loaded into the back of my wife's SUV, bring it home, and then the fun began. And I'm going through all this, like, old software, old books, old modems, old cables, disk drives, monitors, computers, everything. And all I wanted was just a couple of items. So I put the rest on eBay. And I swear, this is some advice to geeks who are into vintage computers, that 100 bucks net me nearly $3,500 of sales. And it's been eBay ever since. So, yeah. Wow. There you go. So if you're going to buy what's left of that lot and everything else that now I got addicted to it, so I've been out there doing, <laughs> you know, storage lockers of stuff. Um, that's where you go, Miles Vintage Computers on eBay, and then you can go buy to your heart's content. All right, and uh, this isn't our pop culture episode, and we're already past the the timer for this segment, but I, I need to hear about this um, Black Widow that isn't in the Marvel Universe, Black Widow called Red Swan. Okay, well, Red Swan is one, I went and saw it this weekend just because I was like, I've got to do something other than sit in this house all day, so I'm going to go see a movie, and Red Swan fit into my this is what time I get to the theater to see what <laughs> to see what movie I want to see. Um, so um, anyway, it's Jennifer Lawrence. She is a Russian ballerina who broke her leg, and I mean this all happens early in the movie, and then um, she gets recruited into this secret uh, industrial mass production spy seductress thing of the Red Army after the Cold War. So there was less action and more intrigue than I expected, but it was done in such a way that it still kept my interest. There was really far too much nudity. Uh, in the 10 years ago, there wouldn't have been that much nudity, but at least it wasn't just let's show Jennifer Lawrence's boobs. Um, it was germane to the story and how they did it. So while I wish there wouldn't have been as much, at least, you know, the classic example is the scene in airplane where they're uh, going around the plane and this topless girl runs in front of the camera just to do it. So that was gratuitous didn't need to be there this was actually germane to the story but like i say there was too much of it and i wish there would have been some less but it was a pretty pretty good movie um there was you know of course it's a lot of cross double cross faint all that kind of stuff and one of the um one of the things it was like oh i didn't see that coming but then i saw how they were able to do it before it happened and so uh, it turned out to be a pretty enjoyable movie has a movie standpoint and not just a boob fest which you have to make that distinction these days well i mean you said jennifer lawrence and boobs i hear oscars um this is going to be one of the most famous movies of all times she apparently has no problems showing um, herself on screen. So I well, that, I didn't know it was going to be that. Yeah. The whole internet has seen her body already as those those uh, phones were uh, phone pictures were released a while back. So I guess she figured I might as well get paid this time. Right. And I didn't know, you know, that's not why I saw this movie. <laughs> it, it, it's just. It was the movie that I that was there when I could see it. So, but all in all, it was a good movie, but not one that you would, um, you know. I think it deserves the R rating it got. And so, if you're not old enough to see an R movie, I would not recommend uh, taking a child to see this one. All right. So now let's talk about mesh networking. This is something we've t- we've sort of danced around in the past, and it's one of the uh, most requested things I get in my emails. Is is let's talk about home networking and mesh networking in general. Um, so I wanted to uh, just talk a bit about uh, 
the first the concept of mesh networking and then mesh networking comes home and uh, i'm a i'm a network nerd i i spent uh you know uh, more than a decade of my life as a network admin so i tend to get a little geeked out about this sort of stuff so i'm uh you guys are going to have to maybe uh pull me back a little bit uh as we go but first off let's just talk about uh what is a mesh um uh, network in, in its dumbest form um it's a collection of wireless access points it doesn't even have to be wireless actually any any mesh any redundant con- series of connections can be a mesh network. Um, and what early on people tried to do, myself included, uh, to create some sort of a mesh was uh, when we had a large area to cover, we bought lots of access points and we just threw them in the building and called it a network. Um, and you know, uh, if anybody who's tried that, you find that you're actually diminishing returns on that. While that could technically be considered, considered a mesh, you're actually doing more harm than good uh, in that. And, um, the modern version that we'll talk about a little bit later, the, the Google Wi-Fi's and the Euros and, and those things uh, have done that by by using uh, you know overlapping uh, signals and and AI level uh, algorithms to sort of control this sort of stuff. Um, and then the uh, the sort of somewhere in between there, between a bunch of dumb networks, uh, access points just spewing stuff, and the modern stuff is is the the concept of a wireless bridge, where one access point listens to another access point. Really, a repeater is a better word for it. Uh, so it repeats the signal that it gets from the transmitter and sends it. Uh, often, you'll see. Um, uh, a Wi-Fi extender or something like that uh, is the verbiage there. And again, that was sort of the the stopgap between throwing a bunch of stuff in and true mesh networking. And there's still a place for that. If you've got something that's just outside of range of your Wi-Fi network, you can throw a bridge in there uh, to pick that up and then send it on either to another Wi-Fi or most commonly to another wired device. So guys, my quick rundown there of, of mesh networking in a nutshell. Any comments there? All right. See y'all next week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no. I mean, I think you you hit everything right there pretty good. There's lots of different ways it can be done, but it it's you really want a professional to do it. And you know, and I know you're going to talk about Google later on. The professionals have pre done it for you, and you just put them up. But if you're just going to get stuff and throw it in there, uh, you'll teach yourself a lot on how to do it wrong. Yes. This is interesting to me, too, because I've tried years ago, I tried to do, I guess, what you would call a mesh network um, at the back of a whole bunch of rental properties where we have uh, CCTV cameras to try to share one internet connection that all the buildings could, and it failed dismally. And I was trying to use like ubiquity, um, long range extension stuff. And I guess it was before its time. So whatever you've come up with, dude, I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> well, what I've come up with is buying the stuff from people who've already done it. Um, so let's move into the, the really mesh networking uh, got its field tests in regional areas. Uh, you guys are familiar with WiMAX, right? It was the, the, the next great future of broadband that never happened. Right. Yep. So the idea there was we set up regional, like within a m- municipality, um, we set up regional uh towers and they uh, listen and extend and uh, uh, extend the range of and and essentially that's what your cell system does now but not really um, mesh networking is kind of its own thing uh, but the cell network makes sense I've got a tower in this zip code and I've got another tower in this zip code and as I move from one to the other they um, intelligently talk to each other and say the signal is attenuating on this side I'm about to lose it and this one says well it's getting stronger over here I'll switch off and they move that connection seamlessly over uh, wireless access points are supposed to do that and have been supposed to do that from the beginning and but really they don't they've I've never had one anywhere particularly mobile devices laptops and phones you know the things that you need wireless for uh, don't do a good job of that handoff you end up completely losing your connection for you know some fraction of a second most of the time, that's not a big deal if you're just web browsing, whatever. But if you're trying to do something like, oh, I don't know, have a phone conversation or a Skype conversation, it totally ruins it. Um, and so we needed better handoffs. And and the whole WiMAX thing was supposed to do that. It was supposed to be a much smarter way to hand off signals uh, back and forth. And so they invented this uh, this I'm not going to say they invented it, but the, not specifically WiMAX, but engineers 
invented this concept of the the multiple radio uh thing so on on a device i might have 10 radios on a single device up on a pole five of those are transmitting and five of those are receiving as a baseline but any of them can retransmit and any of them can can receive and they're all on multiple frequencies so i can intelligently decide uh between the traffic that's coming in because it's on radio one and three uh it's a little stronger on one and it moves through three so you need some either some smart software or some smart people to be managing these things at all the time and it hasn't been until until very recently that sort of stuff has come into place it's very inefficient because you gotta have a bunch of radios a bunch of power um the range is an issue as as waves uh, uh, step on top of each other, uh, and the WiMAX in particular it just sort of lost its government and or um, commercial backing just because the, they weren't getting the results. It was so super experimental, and so what we've what we've done now is we've brought that home. That concept has come home. I think Eero was the first one that I ever heard of uh, to do it. Um, and they brought that wet, uh, mesh networking concept, and it's sort of a buzzword in the internet right now. Um, so, uh, before I do it, can can either of you give me a quick uh, rundown of what a mesh network actually does? Well, we have used it in um, offices I've been a part of. Aerial Hive was uh, a solution that we implemented. So you are using multiple access points remotely you can either manage them they all have their own management but usually there's some type of controller that manages them all so you're managing one entity and then that entity like controls the individual access points so the access points are dumber than like a wireless router you would buy at you know walmart or elementop.com slash amazon um you know they the individual access points have less guts but they're managed from an external source that provides you wireless across spaces that one access point couldn't do and theoretic the thing is they all broadcast the same signal and they manage themselves oh we're getting too much on this on this access point so i'm going to shunt some of these over to the other one and it kind of does some load balancing and when you move from one access point to another in theory, you don't lose connection because they're able to tell I'm getting weaker from this one and closer to that one. And then it makes the switch. Usually there might be some type of hiccup. You know, you're, if you're doing video or something, it might, it might freeze or, you know, your page might, you might have to reload a tab or something like that, but it's using a wired backbone usually to present a robust wireless network that gives the sense of one access point but it's actually a bunch of access points simulating one giant one excellent so in the in the uh the corporate world that's exactly what's out there aruba uh makes devices like that uh, there, there are lots of companies that do it the key thing there is each of those devices is ethernet connected to each other and to the controller so there's a smart controller you talked about the the dumb endpoints that's because you move all the the smarts to a single rack mount device that goes back in your server room and it's all the smarts there uh miles you have any other thing anything to add no i think seth pretty much covered what i thought it was um at least I think I think it is. Uh, look, I'm I'm a spectator in this subject because I do not <laughs> know it. <laughs> I'm a guy who just plugs cables together. So anything that's not cabled, I I you know plead ignorance. And one thing though, I will you know you mentioned they're all connected via copper these days you can actually also connect them via air right depending on the models they have a different radio to transmit to each other than they do to broadcast the signal out so you're not hampering its ability to access clients because it has a separate network that it uses to form a wireless backbone and then it's not competing with itself diluting its cell strength so you know it doesn't have to be wired wired is just easier so let's first talk about why you can't just throw a bunch of wi-fi access well you can't go to best buy or elementopi.com slash amazon and buy 10 netgear devices and throw them in your house and expect a great coverage um seth you've tried that i know miles you just said you've tried that um and i know i've tried that did it work for you nope no not well 
Yeah. And and it took a lot more work to get it to function as good as it did. Right. Because you you've got to touch all these different devices. Okay, which one is this one and what signal do I want to get and which A B you know and so it's time consuming to right. do it to do more than two. So we we use the word wavelength and waves and and airwaves. Uh, wave isn't ex- exactly what it is, right? And and it's hard to see airwaves, but we've all seen water waves. So let me draw you a picture. And let's say that uh, I'm on one side of a lake, uh, a small lake, a pond, and Seth's on the other side. And we devise a communication system by counting the ripples made by throwing something in the lake. So I throw something big in that ripples at a given wavelength. And Seth counts those. And let's say we're using Morse code. One's long, one's short, right? So I throw a big rock in, makes a long wave. I throw a small rock in, makes a short wave. And then by alternating big and small rocks, he and I can have a conversation by throwing the rocks in the water. That's essentially what's happening with all wireless communication. Now, let's say that there were 10 other people on each side of the the same pond, all trying to have independent conversations using the rock method so i throw a rock in it's big the guy beside me throws a small rock in the guy beside him throws a big rock in somebody on the other side who's trying to respond back throws a big rock in eventually you just have this mass of waves all intersecting with each other some are canceling each other out some are overriding each other and if you're on the other side trying to to have this conversation by counting the waves it becomes completely impossible your signal is just lost in the noise the signal to noise ratio that's a real thing. So when you go and you throw uh, a whole bunch of access points out in the the back of your building and you think, well, more is better, right? I've got, uh, I, I did this in education. I had classroom labs full of computers. So I had 25 computers in, in room 151 and in room 152, right beside it, separated only by a, a four inch wall partition was another 25 wireless access points. And I thought, well, that's no big deal. I just throw an access point in this room and an access point in this room problem solved it didn't problem got worse all right let me put two access points in each room they're cheap so now i've divided the load i've got 12 access points uh per lap or 12 laptops per access point that should be easy to handle it it got worse and and not understanding the physics of it not understanding that laptops don't just grab hold of an access point and leave it there every time i added a device i made the system worse and so all right so let's pull things out Great. Now you've got 12, uh, 20 or 50 laptops in two rooms pulling off a of one central laptop. The signal is much better, but now you've got a single 100 megabit or gigabit, whatever that is, uh, to that one device being divided 50 times. Well, that's not good either. The, wi- the Wi Fi signal got better, but the actual throughput got worse. That I was trying to create my own wet and mesh network. And so then I, I started saying, well, I'll call this one this SSID, this network ID. And this one uses a second network ID, and I'll program these 25 laptops to look at this one and these 25 laptops to look at that one. And I thought, well, that'll solve the problem. I isolated the signal, right? But still, the ripples in the ocean were were going crazy. They were canceling each other out. The signals were getting muddled. And even though I tried to separate the channels, it didn't work because I was all on the same frequency. I was still in that band, that that, uh, 2.4 gigahertz band, and so everything, all the Wi-Fi access points I was using, everybody who had a a cordless phone, uh, some cell phone devices, were all in that same band, and it was just getting jumbled. So a true mesh network has to combat all of that stuff. And so it takes some really smart engineering and some uh, real-time flexibility to make all that happen. So, guys like uh, uh, Aruba and the company. Well, who did you mention, Seth? Aereo Hive. Uh, Aereo Hive. They they worked that out with the big fancy controllers. And these devices, uh, you said you were uh, Seth. You said something about they were sending uh, a device. What they what they could probably do is be send, uh, transmit, or receive across a multiple spectrum at any given time, de- depending on the signal that was sent to them. And so they were able to uh, keep the waters from being uh, overly muddied by isolating spectrums. I'm using this spectrum, and then I'm leaving a big space. And I'm using this spectrum, and I'm leaving a space. And that clears things out a whole lot. But again, it required that controller back in the, in the, the room to do all that. Well, Eero, I'm pretty sure it was the first one to do this. They were the first I ever heard of. Uh, were the first one to come out with a, a home version of this. 
And the, now there's uh, the three most po- popular ones are Eero, Orbi, which is made by Netgear. Netgear themselves re- recognize that uh, you couldn't do what people were trying to do with their product. And, of course, Google Wi-Fi. And I'm sure there are others out there, uh, but those are just the ones that I'm most familiar with. And so the idea is you get this little hockey puck-sized thing, and it's got, I don't know how many, let's say six. That sounds reasonable. It's got six radios in it, six power transformers, and a really smart chip, or maybe even six different chips. I don't, I don't know. I've never cracked one apart. Um, and so at any point in time, any one of those radios can be sending or receiving or sending and receiving and changing spectrum. So let's say in a six network, a uh, six antenna uh, array, I have two antennas that are my backhaul. What Seth was talking about, I'm talking to the central node, the the one that's plugged into the network, using two of those. One transmit, one receive, both receive, both transmit, depending on what I need at the moment. I can make that decision uh, at the device. I'm using the other four to talk to up to four different devices independently, or more, 8, 16, 24, whatever, but let's just say four. Uh, talk to four different devices on different frequencies, all within that 2.4 gigahertz range. But I can isolate this signal here and say, um, this. I'm talking to this device on this signal, and I'm getting response back on this signal. And that's the, the communication that can happen. And this one, I, I can have uh, another one of those. And so I get these um, sort of laser-type beams. Instead of just throwing ripples across the whole spectrum of the pond, I'm rippling the water just between me and Seth. And the guy beside me is rippling the water just between him and his uh, person he's talking to. That's pretty cool. Uh, and you're doing it over the waves. You're doing it through, through still throwing stones in the water, but you find a way to directionally um, can channel the waves. That's a bad analogy, but it gets the idea across. And so the mesh networking makes you have um, essentially four independent channels between four devices plus a strong redundant, because you've got two things there, um, uh, a strong redundant connection to the other Wi-Fi access point or to the, the home uh, Ethernet port, whichever one the case may be. And so performance-wise, it's like moving from a hub to a switch. Uh, being an old network guy, uh, a hub was every bit of traffic gets sent down everything. So traffic comes in port one, it goes out port two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Traffic comes in point eight, it gets replicated on uh, seven, six, five, four, three, two, and one. And and it's that ripple effect that happens there. And that's why hubs got so slow. Um, if you if you loaded them up, it was called con- uh, the contention scheme. So everybody was trying to talk at the same time or trying to wait tur- turns. The way Ethernet, Ethernet works is kind of fantastic, actually. The the guys figured out, say we're all in a, in a, a crowded auditorium, and I want to talk to Seth across the room. I stand up and say, I'm Mark, I want to talk to Seth. And if nobody responds, Seth stands up and says, yeah, what do you want to say? Now, Miles is beside me. He wants to talk to John. I stand up at the same time as Miles, and I say, I'm Mark, and, I, and he says, I'm Miles, and we're talking beside each other. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. And so we both sit back down, wait a random amount of time, and stand back up. And so you have to wait. The random amount of times all have to work out so that only two people are standing up at a time. And they send their message, and they sit back down. The more people you cram in that room, the more conversations, the more waiting you do. And so you end up doing most 90% of your time you're waiting uh, because the algorithm set, rhythm says wait a random amount of time before you say anything else. Switch has fixed all that by isolating the channel. I'm Mark, and I want to talk to Seth. He's in chair number six. I'm in chair number five. Anybody else can ignore this conversation. And so switching changed the world it gave you gave you almost one-to-one connection across multiple devices wireless mesh networks the ones that we have in the home do the same sort of thing they isolate they isolate that conversation so there's not crosstalk and you can have a clear conversation with a device as you walk uh, as you go and as you move from room to room the devices can talk to each other and do what I said the cell network does. All right, this phone is leaving me and moving to you. I'm just going to seamlessly hand that off. But the phone doesn't know the difference. He thinks he's getting the same uh, MAC address. He thinks he's getting the same device. It doesn't matter if you have uh, three meshed items or 33 meshed items. The phone that you're using only sees one MAC address. And it gets handed around. It's lied to every step of the way. So it never tries to change that connection. So if you have three access points in your house, they're all set to the same, you know, SSID Mark's network, but they're talking to Mac uh, using in, uh, uh, MAC addresses, individual addresses. So I know that even though I'm on Mark's network and I'm going from uh, uh, point A to point B, I'm going to hang on to point A as long as possible 
And only when I completely lose signal do I look around and say, is there somebody stronger? Oh, B is stronger, and I'll do that. And so that's when you kind of have to lose connection as you move throughout your building to be able to switch networks with the classic uh, Wi-Fi structure. Mesh networking gets around that by lying to the device. Can I ask you a question about that? Okay. Um, now, I don't know this for a fact. It's just a, a fear that I would have. But on the client device, like a phone or the particular example of this I have in mind is my watch when it's got a Wi-Fi connector. If I'm walking around between different access points and it's switching all the time as it determines which one's got the strongest signal or whatever, what's that doing to my battery life on that device? The, the device doesn't notice a difference. It gets a signal from a single network address. And so it's no difference. All the work is being done by the by the nodes themselves. Ah, so I'd get better battery life. Yes, presumably. Ooh, I'm in. <laughs> I'm all in. So I just spewed a lot out there. Any any questions or clarifications? And those of you listening, if you're a network weenie, you know that I totally oversimplified that. But you know, I don't want to get emails about that. I I know I'm admitting to you that I oversimplified that. Well, I just want to add some clarification that mesh networking goes a long way to solve the problem of, you know, frequency and access point names and stuff like that. It does not, however, do anything to address common um, communication issues that would exist between an access point and it's, uh, and your, um, you know, watch or your tablet or whatever. For example, you still don't want to put an access point on top of your microwave because if you do, it will stop working whenever the microwave gets turned on. And I go over to smart people's houses and they say, you know, every day right before dinner, my wireless network goes to crap. And I look around and I say, y'all cook in the microwave a lot, don't you? And then they get this like, oh my gosh, you're like a prophet. And I was like, (laughs) nope, your access point is sitting on top of your microwave. That's what's causing the problem. Or another person I went to, they couldn't use their they couldn't use their computer with a wireless card attached to it and i looked where the computer was i looked where the access point was and right in between them it, they were on different floors was a solid well built refrigerator so the point was let me get you a 6 foot usb cable to move that um to move that wireless card and poof, all of a sudden it works perfectly. So this overcomes the issues of you're in an apartment building and you know everybody has their wireless network. I go to visit my friend, he won't give me his password. So I jump on somebody else's unencrypted network and I freak him out that I hacked his password in five seconds. But um, you know, it will help it will help against stuff like that, but it won't help against you're out of range of all your access points. Right. There's too many, you know, you got your microwave going, all this other kind of stuff going. So it only still addresses Wi-Fi. some issues. Yeah. yeah and and it, but you would be surprised how many people will forget that I have mesh networking. It's not Wi Fi, it's mesh. And I'm like, same thing. Yeah, it's among the best wireless network you can get, but it's still Wi Fi. And there are problems inherent to it. The best place to put your wireless access point is in the middle of the room on an acrylic table three feet off the ground. Uh, You can't use a metal table or a wood table. They'll uh, they'll dampen the signals. An acrylic table three feet off the ground is ideal placement for radio waves. The trouble is nobody's ever going to do that. Uh, You have to find a way to put it in your life. So that that access point you have stuck behind your bookshelf is the worst possible place you could put it. But yeah, go ahead and put it there because you got to live your life. Uh, and so we get around that by just throwing more devices at it. Um, so most people that you will talk to who have an experience with with uh, a Wi-Fi device, an Eero, an Orbi, a Google Wi-Fi, any of those things, will just sing its praises. Best Wi-Fi I've ever had. Um, it's amazing. It, it made everything work better. Um, you're going to pay a pen, uh, premium for that. Uh, currently, they're all running about $100 a, bo- a, a device. And the average home needs, I mean, uh, two to five devices. So you may be looking at throwing $500 in your thing. And if you're trying to do a range extender thing, like between buildings or whatever, you still have to get power and and you still have to have that uh, Wi-Fi access point in between the two things so they can be an effective repeater. So if you've got um, one of the downsides there, and if you use the software that comes with anything, these things, they'll help you set them up. But if you've got a wireless access point that is right on the edge of 
of receiving a signal from the original access point. When you go over there, your phone is going to say, I have full signal, life is grand. But you're not going to have any signal because you're attenuating that signal between the two of them. That backhaul is important. That has to be super strong. And so you may end up needing more devices than you think you need. Uh, in my case, I got around that. Uh, I, I exceed the range in my three-story house. I've got a basement, uh, a main level, and an upstairs. Uh, I fix that by running copper to each floor. So I have a gigabit copper connection between each of them. So in that case, range is effectively unlimited. I mean, the the uh, 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 thousand feet that you can run uh, uh, a gigabit copper. Actually, it's 300 meters, so 900 feet. Um, but uh, that's... Uh, that's the effective range. But if I didn't have that, I'd probably need five access points in my home and I'd need to stick them around so that they could uh, all get good signal and communicate with each other. But if you're like me, let's see, I, I don't have the, the page up right now. I could pull it up, but on, on average, I have anywhere between 29 and 35 devices on my network at all times. Um, when you figure Roku's and TiVo's and laptops and phones, and I got five people in my house and I'm a, a little bit more geeky than the average person. When I have 39 devices sucking down Wi-Fi at all times, it's okay for me to spend $500 to get solid Wi-Fi. That's a, that's a trade-off I'm willing to make. Uh, in my case, I did it for about 300. So if you're a college student looking to, you know, maximize the buck mesh wife, uh, networking is not ready to go yet. It's still pretty expensive. But you uh, you'll get better performance than than you ever imagined. Yeah, I keep roughly five devices connected to my wireless router. I have a two story house, and I can pick up signal on the next hill over from my router. But I spent I got it on sale. It was like a hundred dollars, um, hundred and fifty or something like that. So. It, it just depends on on your situation. But I have a two-story house. All total, it's probably uh, 40,000 square feet between upstairs, downstairs, and apartment. And I, one access point properly placed covers everywhere in the house. I'm assuming you meant 4,000 square feet. Not yes, 4,000. 4, sorry, 4,000. There are hotels that don't have 40,000 right, square yeah. feet. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just didn't want the internet writing in about how much I'm overpaying you as a podcaster. <laughs> so, Miles, like you said, you're a spectator in this. What questions do you have as I blurred through all that? Um, well, there's two things that come to mind. One is security. It seems to me if you have a single wireless SSID, you have a single attack vector. So, the, whether or not that's a thing, I mean, I just know that, you know, I've spent stupid amounts of time watching YouTube videos of people showing how they can sin attacker a wireless access point up, up, kick everybody off it and pull them over to their network just to, you know, be man in the middle attack. And it kind of scares me a little bit how fickle the wireless um, infrastructure is in terms of security attack. Um, it seems like if we've got more devices and more networks sharing a common SSID, then you can do a lot more damage by attacking one SSID that way. Um, I don't know if this is this is helping or hindering or has no effect on that risk. It's probably a risk anyway. Um, that would I would one. say there's probably no change to that whatsoever. You're just as vulnerable either way. Right. So in the home, it's not so much of an issue unless right. you've got some kid running around in their car parked out the front of your house and he says, oh, I'm just going to attack this guy. You know, I mean, maybe that's the thing. It's probably coffee shops and stuff that are more of a target. But um, the other thing which comes to mind is that there seems like this natural inclination that corporations would get that once they actually get this thing stable and solid, that they're going to want to create wireless mesh networks in cities or in, you know, housing complexes or in larger regional areas. And then it seems like maybe they're trying to put an internet on top of an internet. Is that, do you think that's a likely possibility? Definitely. Um, yeah, I think it could absolutely happen. It actually, should, frankly. It, it's already happened. Uh, like cable companies are notorious to do that. Um, Xfinity, if I remember correctly, was Comcast. Yeah. They had this thing where you you had to fight them to not get the Comcast wireless router. And part of the Comcast wireless router was it broadcast the Xfinity SSID to everybody um, who had it in there. And so... 
you know, they were meshing out their entire, you know, the the legal government not monopoly area they purchased, they blanketed it in their Xfinity mesh signal. And so you could be walking down the street, walking your dog, passing everybody else who has Comcast, and you could be on wireless. So, you know, yep. they were, that is a thing. It is um, a thing. And I, I log on to it fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, uh, you're, I'm stealing bandwidth from... Uh, the people around me, I'm really stealing from Comcast. Or I'm given from Comcast, but yeah, it, that is a thing. And I don't think mesh networking makes that any better or any worse. But it does bring up uh, a thing that you know uh, that must be acknowledged, and that is that you're putting a lot of trust in the software when you do this because you lose control of your network. Uh, that's why I, I subtitled this "Let Go and Let Google." Uh, when I tried to retain control of my network, I still was getting crappy Wi-Fi performance. It wasn't until I turned the keys fully over to Google and said, okay, you do this, that I, re- that I reaped the value of the Google Wi-Fi. And whether it's Eero or Orbi or whoever it is, you, the, the smarts has to be in charge. It can't be you unless you're willing to build your own AI and build your own algorithms to do this. Um, this is just, I, I, it was hard for me because, like I said, I was a network admin for a long time. Uh, I'm a network uh, uh, lover. I'm a security wannabe. Uh, I pay attention to these sort of things. And it was really hard for me to just turn that over uh, to the software and say, you keep me safe. You do all the optimization. You make everything work. But once I did, I was happier for it. Um, and you know, then that's the trust thing. Well, I mean, do I trust Google? I've got all my data stored on their phone, uh, and I'm in, in the, in Google drive and in Gmail. So yeah, I trust Google, whether I should or not is a different question, but at some point you got to trust somebody. And if you want the, um, processing power benefit, uh, of a, a Google Wi-Fi or an Eero, then you have to trust their processors to do it. Mm, so this may not be the ideal solution for the the prepper in your family right. or the the average tinfoil hat wearer. It's not going to be something that they're going to sign up to, I would think. But my, my look at that is uh, th- these processors, they're small devices with small processors. They're already doing a lot of work to overload the code to go ahead and snoop on you too. Uh, it's just a lot easier to snoop on you after you leave your house. Um, it's a lot easier for, for the Amazon echo to snoop on me. Uh, it's a lot easier for the Google home to snoop on me. I just think the, the, the Google Wi-Fi or the Euro is, is, uh, you know, it's kind of no point in putting out all that effort. You don't get much back. Okay. Jeez. I don't know. (laughs) I want a solution for this. I do, but I don't want to sell my soul to get it. Um, is there any open source options here that might be doable? I'm not aware of anything. I think there was, I think it was called Open Hive. I don't remember if that's still a thing, but there are open source mesh network things. Um, now that's, at least I know there were at one time. I haven't checked in. Uh, yeah, so you could build a controller probably uh, running on a Linux server and then buy 15 dumb devices and make them all do the same thing that three Google Wi-Fi devices do. I- I'm, I'm sure that's a thing. Uh, but then you got to, you know, you got to look at the cost benefit. You're spending your time and effort. Um, but if you're a black box guy, then yeah, I guess that's worth it to you. I'm not. No, I mean, I, I know probably a percentage of our audience don't go to Best Buy to buy their electronics. They build it. Right. Um, and it might be that this is a go to Best Buy and get the solution off the box. And if there was a build your own and you felt like you had a little more control over it, um, I'd certainly skew that way. That's just me. Uh, but you know, I don't trust anybody. So <laughs> that's how it works. I don't think this is business ready. The, the business guys have products that are more fortified. Uh, but I think for the home user, it's just, unless you're doing, you know, high level secret business at home, it's a no brainer. I don't have any secrets worth keeping. You know, so I don't worry about it. If I were doing government level work or something and I had the data in my home, I might worry about it, but I just don't. Everything I do that's secret is ser- stored on secret servers. All right. Any other comments before I say, Seth, what happened this week in history? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I, unless do we want to continue in the, the tinfoil visor vein? I can certainly <laughs> go that way if we want. I've got some stuff. Yeah, he's just read 1984, people. 
<laughs> Let's save that for a follow-up show. So now, Seth, okay. what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, I wanted to remind everyone that on March the 9th, 1999, Al Gore set history straight. United States then Vice President Al Gore gave an interview on CNN's late edition in which he states, During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the Internet. I took the initiative in moving forward a whole range of initiatives that have proven to be important to our country's economic growth and environmental protection improvements in our education system. This is the infamous statement which will widely be misquoted as I invented the Internet. And Mark, that happened this week in history all the way back in 1999 and now back to you as much as i like bashing politicians and al gore makes it easy to bash him um he he mischaracterized his role but he wasn't completely wrong uh the arpanet existed the internet existed as a government and and college thing he uh, helped um, turn it into a public thing uh it, it would be more accurate to say he created aol than he created the internet uh but it's still fun to make fun of him yeah, I know. But, you know, that, you know, imagine if memes, you know, imagine if that happened in a social network environment, the memes that would have been created off of that, you know. So, um, but yeah, that happened. If you're, if you're younger than probably, I don't know, if you're 30, you might, you probably wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about, even though you would have been around. But yeah, I, he took so much heat from, so much ribbing because ever and he never said i invented the internet but that's what he was misquoted as saying and then you know everybody piled on in a very facebook-esque way yes so and it was funny to just you know it, it was a funny time and it was it was cool to make fun of al gore and now he's saving the world from from uh, global warming so you know he's moved on yeah so now, Seth, what do you have to lower my productivity, thus making you seem like a better hiring option? All righty. Well, this week I've entitled Move Over Arby's. If you know the Arby's commercial, we've got the meat. Well, I want to introduce you to Carnivore Club. And this is a blurb from their website. Live vicariously through your mouth. We get it. You love meat. It's why we created Carnivore Club. The world's first subscription service featured premium cured oh. meats delivered to your door. Every month, we feature a new artisan, each of them blending passion and craftsmanship to create some of the finest cured meats in the world. Every artisan is different. Every box is unique. Whether it's French charcuterie, um, Italian salome, or South African biltong, the premium meat from Carnivore Club is a flavor experience your mouth won't soon forget. And if I could quote Homer Simpson on this, uh. <laughs> I'm just looking at the website. It's about 50 bucks a month uh, to have something come to you every month. Um, whew. Um, I'm, I'm not going to hit submit just yet, but <laughs> this is Show probably Barbie birthday. You yeah, know, Barbie I do have a birthday birth coming up. Yes. So, but and yeah, so, I came right. across this site and I thought people would love it. I have now cho chosen my summer vacation destination. I'm going to South America because that's all they eat down there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because I am a carnivore, and man, to have to have that come to me every month, mm, I am salivating just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, birthday bookmarked. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. You're welcome. It's not, it's not going to keep me from working, but uh, <laughs> it may be may increase antacid sales in the near future. Um, now this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. Tell us what you uh, think about what you what you think about mesh networking. Uh, is it uh, the uh, the government really trying to stalk you, um, or, or is it uh, the best thing ever? Or did I just do the worst job ever of describing it? Let me know what you think. Go to elementop.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, answer the world's hardest captcha, and fill out the form. Uh, and that uh, sends an email that gets priority in my inbox just for you. Or you can send an email to elementopi at, uh, excuse me, to geekrant at elementopi.com. Or you can dial 559-IMOPI and leave us a voicemail. I got like four voicemails last week, and I was super excited about it. And I found out they were old, old, old ones from like 2013. And I'm guessing some server hiccup 
made them all think is new. Uh, so that I was both happy and then sad because they were all <laughs> old ones. So I need you to, to leave us voicemails. 559-I-AM-OPI. Uh, do that and make it so. Uh, guys, as always, I thank you for uh, listening to me this week. I'm sorry that I did all the talking, uh, but uh, uh, I appreciate it. Listener, I thank you for listening. Any final words of wisdom from the geeks on the Geek Round before we say goodnight? Eat more bacon. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I, I will encourage you to support us. Pay for what you like, as I like to say, elementopi.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash elementopi. See how that works? P-A-T-R-E-O-N is one of the best ways to stand up and be counted. Uh, You pick what you want to pay. You put a cap on it uh, if you want to uh, so that we're not uh, overcharging you. Uh, And you only pay when I put out content. I like that model an awful lot. You know, the the people who donate by uh, PayPal X X a month, I certainly appreciate you, but I kind of feel guilty when I don't produce content uh, for a couple of weeks uh, because you're paying me every month. The Patreon I like is I don't get paid unless I do something. So I I like that uh, very much. So patreon.com is my preferred method. Of course, uh, you could uh, go to elementopi.com slash Amazon. That'll store a cookie in your browser and anything you buy pretty much for the next 30 days or until you click on somebody else's referral link, uh, I'll get a small kickback on that, about usually 1% to 5% depending on what you buy. Uh, So that's a a pain-free, slacktivist way to support the podcast. But, uh, you know, as I like to say, pay for what you like. If you like the show, pay for it. If you don't, uh, why are you listening? Uh, we'll see you next week because that's it for this episode of the Geek Rant. Mm-hmm.